There's this famous quote by one of the most influential scientists of all time, Isaac Newton, where he says, if I have seen further, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. What Newton meant by this was that he was able to make his scientific discoveries by building on previous discoveries made by scientists before him. This is how science moves forward. We publish advancements and discoveries to make them available to the next generation of young minds to build on them, bringing fresh perspectives and different life experiences to the table. But what happens when the next generation of scientists is not an accurate representation of the population? How is our collective scientific knowledge supposed to progress if we fail to bring in these fresh perspectives? On this episode, we talk about the importance of diversity and inclusivity in the world of science. Welcome to a new episode of Simply Science, the podcast that talks about the amazing scientific work that our experts at Natural Resources Canada are doing. My name is Joel Ull, and joining me is my co-host, Barb Usina. Barb, how are you? I'm doing uh, just fine uh, right now, um, and I really like how you explained how science is built on a series of previous discoveries. In other words, science today reflects science from yesterday, last year, last century, even as far back to the dawn of time, really. Uh, even if they didn't call it, quote, science back then. And science, like everything else in life, is always evolving. So it's important to keep up with changing time. So true. And that's why I think it's important to talk about diversity and inclusivity, specifically in science in this case. What can you tell us about our guest today? Well, today's guest, uh, Cecile Siwi, is a director general at Canmet Energy Devon, Alberta. She's a chemical engineer who oversees a research and development team exploring technology solutions for the oil and gas sector. Specifically, they're looking for ways to be competitive and environmentally responsible. It's a long way from Central Africa where Cecile grew up. And when she's not at the office, she's involved in mentoring young people who are interested in STEM or careers in science, technology, engineering, and math. I'm looking forward to talk to Cecile. Should we bring her in? Yeah, let's let's bring her in. Joining us today is Cecile Siwi. Cecile, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Perfect. Um, Can you start by telling us a little bit about what you do? Like, you're a director general at Camet Energy, Devon, which is in Alberta. But more specifically, what does your work involve? I run a lab, I, I, I run a, a research facility with about 100 people, and our focus is how to make the production of oil and gas more environmentally friendly. So that, that really is, is it in a nutshell. Wow, that sounds pretty, pretty interesting work. It's very uh, forward-looking, that's for sure. Now, today we're talking about inclusivity and diversity in science. And I'm wondering, you know, why do you think it's important to have a variety of voices represented in science and research? Well, at the very basic level, level, uh, research and science are all trying to find solutions to the problems that are for for all of mankind, not just for one group. So it it really helps to have the input uh, of the 
different groups that are represented in mankind in those solutions that are being uh, being being designed to address the big issues that that face us. The second thing I would add to that is just the level of intelligence and brain power uh, that might be untapped in these underrepresented communities, bringing them in to the fold to get there so that society at large can also benefit from 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 having those voices. We you know we don't know where the person who might find the next uh, change solution in curing cancer. We don't know where they might be today, and we might very easily lose out on the opportunity to hear from them or have their input if they don't find a way to um, make it into science and make it into a scientific discipline. So so really, it's, a, it's about listening, and it's about um, providing space at the table for all kinds of stories, like realizing that every person brings a different story to the table. So it's a matter of just being prepared to listen to those stories and, and give value to everybody's story at the table. Can you think of any examples of when uh, a specific voice might have come to the table or, you know, sort of an example of how a variety of voices have helped shape a particular mission or a particular science? A couple of examples come to mind, not not so much in my discipline, because my, my discipline and my area of research tends to be a lot more, how can I put this group agnostic? So uh, we look for, we make cleaner oil and gas. We, we try to reduce the uh, GHG emissions to the environment that impacts everyone. But if you think about areas like uh, the field of artificial intelligence, we know that uh, those developing those tools, the people who could design and develop and optimize those tools, they use what they know as examples. So that's how you end up in a situation where facial recognition can really identify white men very easily, but it struggles when it comes to to identifying people of color and uh, even even distinguishing between men and women. So that's just one example. Uh, a second example is. Uh, if I have a bruise uh, or a rash, uh, my I would want to look into a textbook or look on on the web and say, what could this be? Chances are, 90% of the pictures that I will see, the bruise or the rash will be on white skin and it presents differently. If I go to my doctor and they're looking at it, they're seeing it on brown or black skin and it, even, it presents differently to them than what they were trained with. So... Having representation in those fields would have ensured putting in place solutions that uh, would be accessible and benefit everyone in society. That makes a lot of sense. Um, let, let's talk about you uh, and your own experiences growing up. When did you decide that you wanted to pursue a career in science? I grew up in Africa. I grew up in, in Cameroon, which is in Central Africa or West Africa, and until I was in high school. And uh, I was uh, brought up believing that there was not anything, I, there, was, there wasn't anything I couldn't do. So I had to grow up with this really strong belief in myself. Uh, plus, I just enjoyed the sciences. I really, really enjoyed the sciences. It was challenging. But even when something was difficult, I, it, it wasn't, oh, I, I have to give this up. Uh, this is not for me because I said, why not? You can do this. You know, you can absolutely do this. So 
I, I can't claim to, to having had a, a core to science. I, it was just a space I enjoyed and I liked doing. And when I went into university, I, I, I did not have a specific career in mind, but I knew that I wanted to explore the scientific area more. I see. There seems to be, maybe this is more of a North American thing, but there seems to be a lot that's said and written about how young girls don't really, like, that they often decide that they don't want to pursue a career in science at a very young age. Why do you suppose that is? The first thing is, I don't know that it's the young girls who decide not to do science, right? So I would maybe reframe the, 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 the premise of that question a little bit. I don't think young girls go up and say, I don't want to do science. And it's more that from a very early age, they have been bombarded with uh, signals from society at large that either this is a space that's not for you, it's not cool, or it's too difficult. And by the time they get to be 12, 13, they might think, well, they don't want to do science. And they really think they're making a decision, but we don't know the extent to which the decision has been informed by signals they're receiving from, from society. So um, that's, that's one thing. And the real shame is that those research has shown that those young girls, almost most of them never go back to science. So you have, you have end up with a whole group of young women who have closed up a door to opportunities, to contributions that they could, could have made to society without fully realizing the consequences of what they could do. So I'm not expecting that, I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest that every young girl can or should grow up to be a scientist. I would just like them to keep that door open long enough that they are making informed, uh, they make an informed decision at some point in time. I don't know that this is a, I, I don't see that this is a particularly North American issue. So like when I was growing up, um, some of those um, signals from society existed. I, I mean, I could see how my teacher would have a almost a peer-to-peer discussion with a male counterpart who asked the question. And me asking a question was almost like you're interrupting the flow of things. And if you, if you ask the second question, there's a, just reined in impatience from the teacher. So there were things like that going on. But um, so it's a challenge that I think young women face uh, or encounter all across the world, not just in North America. So I, I do want to take you back to uh, when you were a young child growing up and, and first sort of discovering for yourself that you do want to pursue a career in science or you're very interested in science. What, what kind of role models did you have um, to sort of talk to at the time? I cannot say that I have role models to talk to. I, you know, a, a, a huge influence in my life is the fact that uh, my parents uh, had a very strong belief in the importance of education. It really was, uh, to get an education, there really isn't anything that you can't do or can't accomplish. So that was, uh, there was that uh, deciding, uh, guiding factor in my life, so to speak. With respect to female role models, my, the, the best one would be in my, 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 my mother and maybe some of my aunts. Uh, she was with my mother, was a very strong woman who also overcome, overcame great odds to pursue a, a career. Uh, and uh, she was a midwife nurse and she had that career for a very, very long time. 
but I was in a discussion just the other day when I, I, I realized that after I left high school, so essentially since I left Africa, I did not have a, a male, a, a black teacher, a black teacher or professor through all my years of university. So uh, I, I believe things have that has improved somewhat, but I cannot. The, the model of the people that I spoke to who encouraged me were all white males. Yeah, not much. Like role models have a, a very wide and uh, important influence on people, especially at that age when they're just uh, sort of entering their careers, going to university. Um, and do you feel like like you would have benefited by having role models, like young black women, young black men, as role models when you're at that age? Oh, undoubtedly. I think uh, eventually one figures things out, uh, but. You know, instead of reinventing the wheel, there are some things I could have figured out much sooner. Uh, there are some signals or some of those unwritten rules that I could have realized and leaned on much sooner. There are some things that I learned after I had been in the workplace for like 10, 15 years, and I'm going, oh my gosh, is this true? Is this real? So having a role model who can give you some of that uh constructive feedback in informal settings uh, would have been very helpful for sure. Have you had the chance, Cecile, to be a role model for the uh, for for the younger generation? Yes. So um, one, I quickly recognized when I came to North America uh, that if I hadn't been born where I was, there was no guarantee that I would have ended up with a career in the sciences, right? I really was allowed to believe and I truly internalized to believe that I could do anything. I could be anything if I make a choice and, and I could do that. So I can see how um, without some of those influences, it would be it might have been easy to just default to a path of these decisions and, and go that way. So I also had some very, very, um, I benefited from support from supervisors along the way. So this is an academic setting, like my uh, my PhD supervisor, my postdoc supervisor, were all uh, people who for no, for no reason uh, took my interest at heart. I benefited from some very good managers. So for all those reasons, I've always felt it incumbent to, to give back or pay it forward. Uh, it's a program that we have in Alberta called Operation Minerva. Uh, it's a... It's been a while since I was engaged in that program, but the, the idea is to get young grade eight, grade nine students to go spend a day with some with a female professional in the in the sciences, and just shadow them for a day and get to see what science is like, what the career in science is like in action, and hopefully spur that interest and really make science come to life and real for these young ladies. So you, right now, you've worked in the oil and gas sectors for years now, uh, which is a very like, traditional field. What attracted you to that field in the first place? Uh, for that, I would have to go back to my undergraduate years. Uh, the program I was in, we, we had to do a, year, a one-year internship, one-year co-op program, as you might say, in Canada. So, and I happened to do mine at uh, a research center, so British Petroleum VP Research in the UK. And I 
really enjoyed what I what I did there. The the the, the, the things I was working on, the challenges uh, of it. Just I was like being a you know a science detective. It was very interesting, and I decided I wanted to to make a career in that space. And uh, that's where I, when I decided what I would do for my PhD and the rest, as they say, is history. Were there any particular challenges uh, for you at that stage in terms of being a young black woman starting in a, in a scientific field like that? Uh, so here's what I would say to that. I was uh, studying in England. I was doing uh, chemical engineering. It was it's a, in, in the late 90s. So that was the, an area that uh, did not have a lot of women. So you quickly become the only, either the only female or the only black person or the only black woman around. And after a while, you stop noticing, right? You just get on with it. This is a space I enjoy. I have colleagues I like working with. I I, I am working on something that's interesting. And um, you just get on with it. So I wasn't really, I cannot really speak to any overt impediment, something that really made me feel like I wasn't welcome and that wasn't the space that I was going to be. Now, I'm sure many other people have had different different experiences. I was always in academic settings. I was in research institutions, even when I worked in the private sector, which I guess is different than being in the field. If uh, and So women who have actually worked in the field might would definitely have different experiences. And as I said earlier, I really benefited from uh, leaders around me who took an interest in my career and uh, would just make sure that I was getting advice and uh, uh, and yeah, they just give me the benefit of their time and their and their insights. Now we hear about like academic institutions, especially universities, uh, becoming you know more more diverse. Um, you know, you can. Just look at any university in Canada, their student body, and it's, it's very diverse. With the expectation that that will somehow, you know, then translate into, you know, further on into other institutions, uh, other workplaces. Have you seen things change? Are you seeing things change in terms of that diversity? I'm sure things have changed from when I was a student at those universities. As I said earlier, I don't, I never had a, 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 a black. Uh, person as a professional and instructor, and I can probably count the number of women I had. I'm just trying to think here. In fact, I think the first female instructor I, I had wasn't even an instructor, it was my postdoctoral fellowship supervisor. So things have changed. Um, so students who are in, in academic settings today would likely have one or two uh, black professors or female professors, but it still would be one or two. So I don't think the numbers are anywhere near uh, where they need to be when uh, compared to the wider population. And the concern there is what does that, what message is that sending to the students if they're not seeing themselves represented in the people who are teaching them? And uh, if are they getting messages that uh, that's not a space that they can aspire to. Those are not careers that they can aspire to. So we we all have a long way to go. In in in, uh, it, it it's a good thing that the student body, the diversity in the student body has increased. It's definitely come a long way. 
uh, we have to make sure that that translates into uh, that moves further downstream into the into academic institutions, into research scientific institutions, as well as into faculty. So you mentioned earlier the importance of a positive work environment. What are we doing at Natural Resources Canada to try to encourage greater diversity and inclusivity? So this past summer, uh, the deputy ministers actually stood up a working group on uh, diversity and inclusion to really put a strategic framework around all the things that may have already been going on in the department on an ad hoc basis. So that work has progressed to the point where a proposal, a strategic proposal has been put forward now for uh, an NRCAN strategy for diversity and inclusion. Uh, I think there was also recently the creation of a Black Employees uh, Association uh, Network that uh, specific to NRCAN, but that's also developing linkages into the different employment equity groups and other diversity groups in different parts of the of the public of the public service. So we, we can have programs like this, but it's it's a matter of having, you know, we can invite people and have people at the table, but it's a matter of having their voices heard as well, such so as sort of a, another aspect of diversity. How can we make sure that everybody's voice is heard? So that that is very true. One of the best uh, best analogies I, I I ever heard about this DNI space is that uh, uh, the person said, the speaker said, diversity is being invited to the dance, right? So that's, you know, that's diversity. Inclusion is when someone actually asks you to dance. And I thought, that is, that is so true. And that speaks to, you can have people in the room, but are they being heard? So it then falls on the leaders. You know, you have the official leaders and the unofficial leaders, the thought leaders who are, they might not have the position as the manager or supervisor, but people look to them. Uh, it then falls to those people in the room to create the space to make sure that uh, all the voices are being heard. That's the point of having a wide range of perspectives in the room. You want that input into decisions that are being made, solutions that are being found. So if I go back to that uh, analogy of being invited to the dance, the leaders, the, the 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 leaders, the managers, supervisors, and thought leaders—they're like the host of the of the party. You throw a party, you invite people, and you and people show up. And you, but you want everyone to have a good time. I know this is really simplistic, but you have to want everyone to have a good time. So if you notice someone doesn't have any drink in their hand, you offer them a drink, and you pass the plate of canapés around. And if someone is not dancing, you go and invite them to dance. So. Uh, but we do have to make, this is not something that comes naturally to everyone. And as with most, most things, uh, some training might be required. But we have to learn how to uh, create the space for the, the people at the table, for the people in the room to make sure that their perspectives and their inputs are captured. I really like that analogy. Um, so, Cecile, what would you encourage young people listening right now who are interested in a career in science? Uh, like, what do you encourage them to do or say to make sure that their voices are heard? Science is such an interesting space. And, and, you know, and I know I have a biased view. It's so interesting. Science is all around us. And there's so many different uh, things that, that um, young people can do. So 
the first thing I would say is um, ask questions. And uh, if you feel like you're not getting uh, a response or you don't understand the response, just keep asking the question. Ask and ask again and uh, make sure that you are heard. Talk to people around you. Um, ask people what they do. People in your circle, ask to be introduced to people to find out what they do. Uh, why they chose their career. You find that uh, people are so interesting in the things that they've done, in the things that they've chosen to do, the things that they're that they're planning to do. And and if you ever start finding yourself thinking, oh, this is not for me, just just stop and ask yourself, is that really is it really you saying that, or is it just messages that you've been receiving and internalizing without without realizing without realizing? So I just want to repeat again that. Not every young person can grow up and not every young girl can grow up to become a scientist, but I do so want them to be making an informed decision. And if you say, it is not for me, you can say, yes, it is not for me. And I know this because I have I have come to this point. I did not close the door when I was in grade six or grade eight. I, I, I remained open to the possibilities until I found something that I liked more. Mm-hmm. And even if they think they're not interested in science when they're in grade five, like in grade 10, they might change their mind. Or when they're graduating from university, they might change their Absolutely. mind. So it's like, don't, yeah, you don't want to pigeon your whole, pigeonhole yourself too too much, you know, early on in your life like that. And I just want to get back to, you know, sort of the work that you do. Um, and the sector that you're working in now is clean energy, which is like a relatively new field. It's evolving. It's really super exciting. And I'm wondering if, you know, the newness of everything to do with clean energy, does that, you know, do fields like that offer, like, more opportunity for diversity and inclusion? Like, it's it's brand new. Like, there are no sort of traditions set up yet. I don't know. I think I'd be hesitant to say it offers uh, a, a brand new opportunities. It definitely uh, offers exciting opportunities, but the challenge with recruitment into this field and retention, uh, that with experience in other fields as will still remain. Uh, this is the question I, I ask uh, everyone, and we all have to ask ourselves these questions. After the events of last summer and after you know the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, protests that we saw, all institutions and companies and organizations, they really have good intentions and they mean well. But the thing is, what are we going to do differently? If we want different outcomes, we have to do something differently. The people at the front lines, the gatekeepers, have got to really absorb that those good intentions and translate them into doing something differently. So this is true of the clean tech space. It's an exciting space. Um, there are lots of uh, innovative challenges that can that can apply here, uh, but we have got to think differently to attract young people into this field. The same, uh, in, uh, young people, young women, young black women into this space. The same as we need to do in all in all in all areas. So if people would like to know more about like just diversity and inclusion in the world of science, are there any resources online available? Well, I, a quick Google search would really grow up so much that people can, can look at. Um, you have some exciting young female scientists who have um, 
They do TikTok, they're on Instagram, they're on Twitter, and uh, it's really easy to, to find these people and, and, and follow them. There are some resources, there are organizations that um, make resources available. They put on talks and, and, and things like that. One thing that I think that might get sometimes get overlooked in this space is, on the one hand, we are telling and we are saying, which is true, these young women, that it's so hard to get into this space, there's underrepresentation. We have to make as much of an effort to tell them why should they get into this space? What's in it for them? If it's so hard, and and they're going to be they're going to not see themselves represented around them. Why should they be getting into this space? So we also have to uh, make sure that we give young women the messages of uh, the contributions that they can make, the exciting careers that they can make, so that they can see what's in it for them to pursue careers in this space, and not just for them to do it for the benefit of society. Thank you so much, Cecile, for taking the time to come and chat with us today. The information you provided us and the insight is, is really important, and we really appreciate you taking the, the time to come and chat with us. Great. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. It was great to talk to Cecile and see things from her point of view. For sure. She has such an interesting background and she's a real trailblazer when you think about it. I love the analogy she came up with when she compared it to a dance card. It's great to be invited to a dance, but real inclusivity happens when you're invited to the dance floor. And she said it a whole lot better than I just did. But um, so, yes, we need to talk about diversity, inclusivity and what it means. And could this be a time for profound and meaningful change? Let's keep the conversation going. I couldn't agree with you more. It's really important to get that, you know, to keep that conversation going. You're absolutely right. So for you, our audience members, we have some links in the episode description that might be of interest to you. There's a link to an article called 17 Ways to Get Excited About STEM, where we ask NRCAN scientists about what or who inspires them. It's basically a list of cool ways to get excited about STEM careers. We also have links to some of the work being done at Camet Energy in Devon, where Cecile works. So if you like the episode, feel free to share it with your friends. And if you share over Twitter, make sure to tag us at NRCanScience, or you can tweet at us directly. I'm at Joel Science. And I'm at Simply Science B. That's the letter B. I might remind everyone that Simply Science also has a website and a YouTube channel, which you should check out. We have in-depth articles of interest and videos that showcase the fascinating scientific work that we do at Natural Resources Canada. And you can find those links in the episode description as well social media channels too thank you barb and thank you so much everyone for listening we'll see you in the next episode see you next time